Well, Father, in light of distraction, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that today we get to worship our King. We get to study your word. We get to be conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. I pray that that would happen by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would be among us and with us and working actively through us. Let your word go forth with power and let it hit its mark. And we give it all to you as an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, concluding in Exodus 13 and marching through part of 14, again, I've called this fighting by faith. I'll never forget the feeling I had in my stomach not that long ago as I stood on my deck really a few months ago watching Hunter, my two-and-a-half-year-old son, inch closer to the edge of the driveway. Now, he'd been hanging out in the front of the lawn for a good bit after what seemed like only a few seconds of me ignoring him, as many of you parents can resonate with. I looked up, and he's 20 feet from the edge of the road. I thought to myself, this rascal is headed for the road. And I call out his name, I holler at him, and he turns around, and he looks at me, he gives me that look that only a two-and-a-half-year-old can give you, and he said, see you later, in his eyes, and he starts booking it for the road. Now, thankfully, I'm still athletic enough where I caught him. I had about 150 feet to make up, and I caught him right as he entered the road. Of course, I lost my mind on him. I spanked him, did all the things you probably shouldn't do in your anger. My heart's racing. I'm scared. He was not scared at all. But as I think about that story, I reflect upon just the simplicity of that moment. I think it reminds us, reminds me of an essential truth, that I am a steward over my son's life until the day comes when he will be at the top of the proverbial driveway, ready to leave to go out on his own, hopefully to enter the world as a son, a son that I pray has been equipped by his father to conduct himself like a son, and not a slave that can't wait to leave home. My prayer is that when he says, see you later, dad, it will be with all the love of a son between his dad and not a rebellious slave that can't wait to leave home. How does this connect to our text today? I believe that as we see the nation of Israel leaving Egypt, they are leaving a place that they have spent 400 plus years in as predominantly servants and slaves of Egypt. They have at this point been slaves longer than America has been a nation. Think about that. They think like a slave, they act like slaves, they talk like slaves, but they have been physically delivered from Egypt. What we see is that the Israelites have been delivered by God, but this deliverance is mostly an external deliverance. It has not been solidified in their hearts. They have not gone, and notice this, they have not gone from slavery to sonship. They were out of Egypt, but Egypt was still very much in them. And this is often the case with us. We say to the world, the flesh, the devil, like my son at the top of the driveway, see you later, we're free, yet we are not ready practically, to live in the realities of what that freedom means and what that freedom represents. We, like the Israelites, have really not learned to mature and to fight by faith. And I think as we follow the narrative into this pivotal moment at the start of their exodus, they have not gone very far. They've only gone a slight journey out of Egypt. And we find them at the end of chapter 13 for the first time in a very, very long time, following what was brand new to them, the Spirit's leading. 
the Spirit of God's leading. This is one of the first marks of learning how to be a son in God's kingdom and not a slave. We follow the Spirit's leading. So in verses 17 and 22 through 22, we see this demonstrated that when Pharaoh let the people go in verse 17, it says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So fascinating here, we see right away that the Lord does not lead them the way that would be the most efficient, the most direct, or the most obvious. What would be that way? Well, that would be a way that would follow the edge of the sea, leaving right out of Egypt along the coast, but it would take you right through the land of the Philistines, which, of course, were going to be a formidable foe throughout much of Israel's history. And, of course, the Israelites knew nothing of the kind of foe the Philistines would possibly be, and that it would only really be a two-weeks journey to get to the land of promise from Egypt following this route. Well, the Lord has sovereign plans, as He always does. He has a better plan, a plan that is not the most direct, a plan that is not the most efficient, but it's a plan that will get Him the most glory. And in our lives, very similarly, we often encounter this wilderness journey as we step out in faith, usually for the very first time, we want to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. And if you're like me, you, you like efficiency. You like being able to achieve things in a timely manner, quickly, fast. And in our culture, we thrive on speed. We thrive on efficiency. We thrive on getting things done and getting things done as soon as possible. We live, obviously, in a mindset today that is extremely hurried and busy, and we don't like going the long way home, ever, unless there's a really good reason for it. And, of course, God is going to take his people the long way home, and it's going to be made longer by their obstinance and by their rebellion, which we'll see as we continue to walk through Exodus, as many of you are aware but nonetheless, in this introduction to their journey into the wilderness, God leads them by not the most direct way, but he's leading them into a situation where Pharaoh will be in a trap. He will be drawn out of Egypt and brought into a trap. The Lord knows what he's doing. But I think one of the things we can glean from this is that though the people marched out of Egypt, and we notice this here in verse 18, they were equipped for battle. You'd say, well, what do they have to worry about? They have all the weapons. They have all the tools. They may have been dressed like soldiers and looked the part, but they were still slaves in a soldier's uniform. They were not ready for war. They were not prepared for a fight. That's going to be proven in spades here in a little while. So though they could have gone straight away into the land of the Philistines, taken names, taken the land, God says, no, they're going to turn tail and run at the first sight of combat. They're not ready. They may have all that they need, but they're not proven in it. And such is the case with us as we go from uh, a deliverance from bondage, metaphorically speaking, from the old life, from the sin in nature. God leads us out through faith, and we have all that we need in Christ Jesus. We have all the apparel, all the tools, all the weapons, but we don't know how to use them. We don't actually know how to employ them in any reasonable manner. And the Lord is going to take us the long way home. He's going to teach us how to be led by the Spirit of God as sons and not as slaves. Because if we just go half-cocked into combat, 
we're going to turn tail and run. And if you've had that experience, like I have, where you've rushed into something that you were not ready for, you found out very quickly that you were not prepared for the battle. And the battle will prove your mettle. So God, knowing his people better than they knew themselves, takes them not the direct way. And I think this is often the way of God's Spirit. We see this modeled perfectly in the life of Christ in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says of Jesus as he's about to launch out into his three-year ministry. Uh, and this is Christ. Jesus, it says, full of the Holy Spirit. He'd already been baptized. The Spirit of God had come upon him. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Fascinating to me that here Jesus on the cusp of his ministry, this is Christ, this is not us, full of the Holy Spirit, baptized, affirmed from heaven by the voice of his Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, doesn't immediately go into Galilee to do ministry. He goes for 40 days into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by the devil. We're not going to preach that whole message. That's a whole separate deal. Jesus would ultimately overcome where his people failed, Israel historically failed. He would resist the devil for 40 days, where the nation of Israel failed for 40 years. Nevertheless, we see that God often leads us into the wilderness for good and glorious purposes. So perhaps that's you here this morning. God is taking you the long way home. You're excited. You're energized. You have all the tools, but you don't know how to use them. You don't, like a son yet, know how to fight by faith. But God is gracious and God is merciful. And like all of us in this room, God is teaching us daily how to fight by faith, how to use the weapons of our warfare for good. So though they were equipped, though they were dressed like soldiers, they were slaves in their heart. And I think that furthermore, we see that the Lord goes with his people It's interesting, we jump ahead. We're going to come back to verse 19 and deal with that in a moment. But I want to jump to verse 20 in chapter 13. And it says, And they moved on from Sakoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Sakoth in the Hebrew means booths, kind of similar to like um, the Feast of Booths. It would be a place that was uh, not as barren, not as like arid as where they were going to journey into. It was just outside of Egypt, so they could sort of still see Egypt. They weren't far from what they knew. So it's sort of like this nebulous place where they were like, they were like a few feet outside of Egypt, but they weren't really free and on their own. It was like my son at the edge of the driveway. It's kind of where they were in Sakoth. They were like, they had, they had left. They had done a real exodus. It wasn't fake, but they hadn't really taken any more steps beyond that, and the Lord would lead them into the next place he would lead them to Etham, and Etham simply means fort. And I have in my mind this, like, frontier outpost, you know, kind of like it feels sometimes up here in New England, like where there's, like, this sitting on a hill, this fort on the edge of the wilderness. And, and the people of Israel would come to this place called Etham, and it would be, like, on the edge with nothing in front of them. So they had all their history behind them, and they'd be looking out into the desert with nothing but faith. And the Lord's leading. And this is how it feels, does it not, to trust the Lord. You step, you leave your bondage behind, you go a little dirt journey, and then the Lord takes a little bit further, and all of a sudden you're like at this precipice with nothing in front of you to see, nothing tangible to touch, nothing that really grabs your attention and says, this is where we're headed, this is the future with God, this wilderness. 
God leads them to this place that literally means this outpost at the edge of the wilderness. And they went from a triumphant deliverance, going out with defiance, the next chapter will describe, to a barren desert. But this is precisely where God wants them. Furthermore, we see that the Lord goes with his people, and this is important. He manifests his presence among them in a pillar of fire by night, in a cloud by day. So first we see the Spirit's leading. Then we see the Spirit's presence as demonstrated in this pillar of cloud and fire. It says the Lord in verse 21 went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is an amazing thing. The pillar in cloud would be a visible directive of the Lord's leading for them throughout their journeys. And as you follow the narrative, once the tabernacle is erected later on in Exodus, it would preside, the cloud in the pillar of fire would preside over the tabernacle. The Shekinah glory would come and habitate uh, the tabernacle. And if the cloud moved, the people would move. And if the cloud stayed, the people would stay. And in the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God is uh, really seen in this visible manifestation of God with His people as manifested in this pillar of cloud, uh, in this pillar of fire. And it would be their directive. It would be their, their, their visible sign that the Lord was leading them on or having them stay put and abide in a place. So we see that the Spirit of God is with His people, leading them, directing them, making them, this is important, distinct among all other peoples by the manifestation of His divine glory and presence. Isaiah 63, you know, there's some mystery around like, what is this pillar of fire and cloud? And Isaiah 63 is helpful. In verse 10 through 14, it says, of this narrative of the people of Israel, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. That's important. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Yet in the New Covenant, in the time in which we live, post-Pentecost, God isn't only with His people, He is within His people. The ministry of the Spirit is now the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have become the tabernacle of God. We, are, we have within us Christ, the hope of glory. So now, though God's Spirit was with His people, and at times in the Old Covenant upon His people, now in the New Covenant by the glories of grace and the justification we have in Jesus, He is within His people. Now, I want to contrast this for a couple different reasons, because not only is that theologically important, but practically we look at this text like I do, and I say, man, you know, it'd be really nice to have a cloud. It'd be really nice to have a pillar of fire. You know, we're trying to make some decisions in our lives. 
it would just be really helpful to like see the cloud move, to see the pillar of fire move, to be able to travel by day and by night. Wouldn't that be sensible? Lord, that would be pretty cool. I mean, it seems like the old covenant was better. The old covenant was, was kind of nice. They could see. Now we just have faith. Well, Jesus says to Thomas, if you have any doubt about the contrast between those two, he says, blessed are you who believe and do not see. In contrasting those who believed after they saw, like Thomas. Not only that, but I don't want to go back to the glories of the old covenant, for they pale in comparison to the glories of the new. In a multitude of ways, not chief of which, or at least of which, is the reality that I would rather have my Bible than a pillar of fire. I would rather have the light of God's revelation in the totality of Holy Scripture than a cloud leading me along. As glorious as that was for a people out of slavery, and as important as that was at that point in divine revelation, we have it so much better. You say, man, I really could use a cloud. But no, you have the Scriptures. You have prayer. You have the community of the saints. You have a better blood. You have a better covenant. You have a better mediator. And you have a better hope. All of that is bound in the new covenant. So as we look at this old shadow, it's glorious. And it was beautiful for them, but it's not glorious to us because we have it better. So you say, man, I could really use the Spirit's leading. I could really use the Spirit's help. Will you have the Word of God? And if you're blind today, a couple things might be at play. Either living in unbelief, not seeking God's face, or the Lord is simply teaching you to do what he teaches all of his sons and daughters to do, and that is to live by faith in the revelation he's given. And many of us sometimes feel as though God is so distant and God is so hard to know, and and it's so hard to know the mind of the Spirit, yet we have the mind of the Spirit in Christ. He has given us as sons and daughters his Spirit which cries out, Abba, Father. So notice this, that in Egypt, the people of Israel were driven by the dictates of the world. As God's covenant people, God leads us by his presence and spirit. So we are not a people that need to be driven like cattle. God's spirit leads us like sheep. That is one of the important distinctions that they are learning in this new journey that they're taking out of Egypt that all their lives, generationally, they've only known how to follow the orders of man. A little bit similar would be like a a military man coming out into the civilian world, and all he knows for so long of his life is this structure, this rigidity, this following of orders, this, this, this hierarchy of command, and then he steps into civilian life. He almost doesn't know what to do with himself in some instances because he doesn't really know how to create his own way. He's only known how to follow And as helpful as that is, in many respects, God's people are in a similar place. They've only known how to be driven by taskmasters. And now God is leading them, going in front of them instead of beating them from behind. And they don't almost know what to do with it. It's psychologically different. And in our lives, the world has conditioned us to be driven people, to be pushed people to always be chasing, chasing, chasing. And yet God gets out in front of us as a good, good shepherd and he leads us like a flock. And sometimes we say, man, you know, I kind of, there's a part of me that kind of likes being driven. And God says, no, you're going to be, you're going to learn how to be led. And you're going to learn how to follow. This is the way of faith. And I love how Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 9 and 17 flesh this out a little bit. When Paul writes to the Romans, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Notice that. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. A glorious promise. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this is the way of the new covenant, the Spirit of God working within us, moving us, leading us, guiding us by his word, by prayer, by the means of grace he's given through his church, through the Lord's table, all the different avenues by which God communicates so faithfully and powerfully and sufficiently to His church is in the glories of the new covenant. But here we have a foreshadowing of that glory in that God leads His people by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. So interestingly that they can move like an army by day and by night. Some of the greatest military conquests in history have been achieved because an army was able to move at night. Remember Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War at the Battle of Chancellorsville had an opportunity to surprise the Union Army. This is 1862. And being the strategist that he was, also a godly Christian man, uh, fascinating life, really. He dies in 1863 from a bullet wound. But he marched his army double time all through the night to reach the Union encampments. The Union Army had no idea what was coming. And at daybreak, they burst through with like three divisions and routed an entire camp and changed the whole course of that battle because he marched through the night. And the Union Army did not expect that, but that's the kind of man Jackson was. So here you see God setting up his people for the ability to move with haste, to move with speed, to move by day and by night as he would lead them. And now I want to come back to verse 19, because this is pretty cool, because not only do we see the Spirit's leading um, and the Spirit's presence, but we also see that there's a legacy of faith that God's people take with them, specifically Moses. We thank God for Moses because it doesn't make mention of the Israelites remembering, but perhaps they did. Either way, in verse 19, we have this interesting note that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. He shall carry up my bones with you from here. This is not a slight subnote. This is significant. This little verse is fulfilling Joseph's request made way back in Genesis chapter 50, verse 25, one of the last verses of the the book of Genesis. Joseph proclaimed this prophetic, uh, hopeful promise, this word of God to his family that this is not my permanent resting place. And I think this is so significant on on really multiple levels. But we see here that this, this is a profound legacy of faith that all throughout their slavery... All throughout that 400 years, you had the bones of Joseph almost crying out, saying, this is not home. 
this is not home. And I got to think that after 400 years, they felt pretty quiet. That, that, that legacy felt pretty dead. And, and literally it was. But yet not is the word of God. The word of God never is dead. And God had made this tremendous promise through Joseph. It was actually the one thing that got him a mention in the hall of faith. I found this pretty significant. I never noticed this before. Out of all the glorious life that Joseph lived in righteousness, the one thing that Hebrews 11 says about him, that the singular greatest act of faith was his prophetic instruction regarding the exodus in his bones. That does not say that the rest of his life was obviously insignificant, for it greatly was. But this is what gets him a mention in the hall of faith, that this prophetic word, this promise, is what was an anchor way back then in Genesis all the way to the present moment. And Moses doesn't forget. And he goes and gets the bones, digs them up, takes them with him. Now, is this some weird, like, digging up the dead and bringing them with you, like some weird ritual? Not at all. Joseph has long been dead, but his bones serve as a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise to the fathers. And Joseph's bones in themselves are, of course, nothing. But what they communicate is everything, namely that God is a man of his word, that he will accomplish what he says every single time. And I think Joseph's faith speaks through time into our present day, reminding us, God's people, in the wilderness of his good and perfect purposes. As they were about to journey out of Etham, looking at nothing but desert, they have with them this visible legacy of faith, of a man who prophesied over 400 years earlier that this very moment would happen. And here as they journey out in total dependence, in real weakness, not fit for war, not ready for what's in front of them, not a clue about what the, what's about to happen to them, they have the bones of Joseph. And though he's, he's dead, he speaks. He speaks loud and clear of the glories and faithfulness of God. And I think in our lives, uh, this legacy of faith is really a dying gift that Joseph bequeathed to God's people, that it would accompany them in the Exodus. And though Joseph, uh, Joseph wasn't forgotten because of the faithfulness of Moses. Moses here comes and gets him. I wonder if the, the people of Israel have been like, we'll just leave him there. You know, but Moses comes and digs him up, or at least he gets mentioned as the guy that does. But I think applicationally for us, and this is really important, and it's something we often neglect in our day, that we do well to entrust our lives and our death into the hands of a better mediator, because Moses is a type of a mediator. We do well as servants of Jesus Christ to give our lives into the hands of Christ, who will resurrect us on the last great day. So though Joseph is resurrected as a type by Moses, we have a better resurrection by the Lord Jesus, who was a better mediator. But not only that, it is wisdom in the Christian's life to allow dead men to speak to us, men that have gone before us and left us a legacy of faith. We in the church tend to pay too much attention to those living among us, those whose race has not yet been completed. The chips are not all the way down. They're maybe running well and they're worthy of modeling. But the final word has not been spoken, and that's true of all of us in this room. We pray, according to Scripture, that the Lord's mercy would keep us under the day. It would run well to the end. But often we pay attention to influencers and 
pastors and men who we should be mindful of. We should heed them as they are faithful to Christ, but they do not speak as well as men and women who have died before us. Why is that? Because their record is complete. Their race has been run. The totality of their life is on display. And I think in the church today, we need to recover and reclaim and pursue these men and women of old. We need to be more interested in what dead men say about Christ than what those alive say about Christ. Because they speak clearer, they speak better, and they speak more powerfully. This is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Hear me when I say that. This is not to start ignoring your pastors, to start ignoring trusted teachers, to start ignoring relevant books. But this is to make much more of those who have a history and a legacy to give us because we're building on their shoulders. I think particularly as it's Father's Day, uh, you know, one of the great desires that all godly men have, all the righteous have, is to leave a legacy for their kids. And, of course, that legacy chiefly is the legacy of Christ. But what are my kids going to say when I'm dead? They say nice things perhaps when I'm alive, but what are they going to say when I'm dead? What do we say of people like Jonathan Edwards, D.L. Moody, Spurgeon, uh, a whole bunch, Babnick, all these great theologians, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, these people some of you have maybe never even heard of. You just dig them up. Look them up. They'll enrich your soul. They'll enrich your life. And when you're facing the wilderness of your journey, they will be the bones that speak to you in the midst of your faith. They will encourage you in ways that only dead men can. So Joseph serves as a model of this. Joseph's bones are not just a passing afterthought. They are extremely significant on this Exodus journey as we learn to fight by faith. So that moves us into our final portion, and we're going to kind of chop this chapter in half, but trust the Lord. I'm going to leave some themes out intentionally that I think hopefully will be helpful for Pastor David next week. I don't want to preach anything that he might preach. So it's always tricky when you chop a chapter up. But nonetheless, we will journey into chapter 14, where it says in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piaharioth. I can't say that word right, so forgive me. Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Well, it seems pretty innocuous, that command. Well, if you actually do that, you're facing the sea in front of you, the wilderness behind you, and you're stuck. You've got over a half a million people, men, women, and children, going nowhere fast. Moses has got to be thinking to himself, what is this about? He does it. They move, they camp, there they are. Pharaoh, being a shrewd pagan, says to the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. Perfect. They don't know where they're going. They get out of Egypt just like they wanted. Here they are, clueless. They're just wandering like a bunch of fools. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. They're lost. Not only that, they got their backs to me, and they're facing a sea. As a strategist, game over. You know where to go. The whole time, God's setting a trap. He says in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. <laughs> God's not done with Pharaoh. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? 
We have let Israel go from serving us. This is insane, but only in light of the sovereignty of God does it make any coherence. But this man, after all he's been through, still grieving over the death of the firstborn son, gets in his chariot like a raving lunatic and pursues this people, thinking that that would be a solution to his problems. And yet the Lord is setting him up for the ultimate destruction. So he made ready his chariot in verse 6, took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So here they are just, again, think of it like parade, uniform, 4th of July. Like these people are proud. These people are excited. These people are dressed up to the nine. They just plundered the Egyptians. They're leaving filthy rich. I mean, they got all the energy on their side. All the momentum's in their favor, but now they're in a little bit of a pickle. Pharaoh picks up on it, chases them, all according to the Lord's plan. He says, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by, and camped at the sea. I'm not going to say those words again. When Pharaoh drew near in verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. It's quite a contrast here as they've been following the cloud. They see another cloud forming in the distance. It's a dust cloud. It's a dust cloud of over 600 chariots and a bunch of men marching hastily with speed to them. So you have this visible cloud of the Lord's presence and you have this other visible cloud of the enemy's presence. And they're colliding into this blended mess of perplexity. And doesn't that somehow describe our lives as we have our backs to the enemy? We've got our face set towards Christ. We see his visible presence. We see his glory. We see his beauty. But in the midst of that, we also see a dust cloud forming. And it's the dust cloud of our enemy. It's the dust cloud of former sins. It's the dust cloud of things coming back to haunt us, coming back to get us, coming back to bring us back, to backslide into slavery. And when you are first liberated, in any sense of the word, the enemy pursues you. The enemy is coming back for what was ripped out of his hands. But the glorious thing is that Christ will keep you. Christ is sufficient for these things. And no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man, and Christ will make a way of escape. And he's about to make a remarkable way of escape, and in the process, finally, completely, and succinctly destroy Egypt and destroy Pharaoh, who is a type of the devil. So Pharaoh draws near. The people cry out to the Lord in verse 10. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? What a thing. They said this in chapter 5. Leave us alone. Leave us alone. This is just going to create trouble. It's going to create trouble. And, you know, you might be following the Lord today, and you say to yourself, man, following Jesus has only created trouble. It's only been trouble for me. I've left, but look at the trouble I'm in. Look at the things that are haunting me, the things that are pursuing me. Look at the enemy around. Look at the dust cloud of his chariots. You might say, man, following Christ has brought nothing but trouble. Don't say that. Because on the edge of that is a great deliverance. And here they cry out, and they're complaining, and they're acting like slaves because they have not learned how to fight by faith. They don't know what it means to be sons and daughters of the king yet. They've been externally delivered, but their hearts are far from God. They don't really know what it looks like to live by faith, so they say what every slave says. 
Is this the reason that you've taken us away to kill us off in the desert? And I don't know about you, but I've said that more times than I'd like to confess in the privacy of my heart to the Lord as I've followed him by faith and ended up in a desert place with the enemy behind me and the sea in front of me and said, is this really what it's all about? Is this the point? And God would rebuke me and I would put my hand over my mouth and I would say, Lord, I repent for your ways are better than mine. And at the edge of what looks like disaster to you is the beginning of God's greatest deliverance. And it's a beautiful thing, but here the people are being slaves in their heart. They're being unbelieving. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Here in closing, we see Moses' response to be so glorious as he looks at half a million people who are ready to betray him, who are ready to turn tide and run. And he looks at them in the face like any real commander should and says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which who will work for you today? Your arm? No, the Lord's arm. And the Lord alone deals with the devil. But what this highlights among many things for us is this would be a standard moment. It would be the model moment by which all other battles that they would fight would be compared to. What I mean by that is this. They will indeed pick up swords and fight in the future. They will be engaged in combat in the future. They will have losses and they will have wins. But at this point in the game, what they need to know more than anything else, and what we need to know as sons and daughters of Christ, is that we never fight our battles for victory. We fight from victory. We don't fight for it. We fight from it. And God's people did not know that the Lord was the one fighting for them. And often we don't know. We say, like any slave would, the world is against me. It's all on my shoulders. I have to be the man. I have to take care of it. And God says, no, all the battles that will face you in your life need to be compared to the final battle that God has wrought in Christ Jesus over the devil, sin, and the grave. Every other fight we engage with from here to glory is a fight that is first based upon what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. We are not fighting for Christ to do what was insufficient at the cross. We are fighting with faith. We are fighting from faith. And we are fighting by faith. But yet here, the people with their backs to Egypt and their faces to the sea have no comprehension of war, and they have no comprehension of the nature of their faith and the ability it has to overcome the world. But I want to point this out, that though the people's faith was tiny in quantity, it was sufficient in quality. And though your faith might be small like a mustard seed in its quantity, if its quality is sincere, it is effectual for you because its quality is based upon the work of Christ and not your own to, to bring about deliverance. So the nature and character of our victory over the enemy is that our faith is in the Lord Jesus. 
Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You need to preach the gospel to yourselves when you have your back to Egypt and your face to the sea. And you look at your life and you say, Lord, is this what you brought me out here for, to kill me? God says, no, by grace, through faith, you have been saved. I haven't saved you to kill you. I've saved you to deliver you. And I've saved you because you have work to do that I have created you to do since the beginning of the world. So your present perplexity will be turned into a great deliverance, not because of who you are, not because of the quantity of your faith, but because the quality of your faith. As Peter says in his first epistle, the quality which is much more precious than gold, though tested by fire, is the quality of our faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. So the weakness of this people is great. They have no ability to contend with Egypt. Neither do you. Christ did. Christ said it's done. And as you fight your battles going forward from a place of victory, you fight from victory. You don't fight for victory. And again, I love the fact that in Hebrews 11, this entire narrative gets a mention. And what it says is that by faith, they crossed the Red Sea. It doesn't mention their failure. It doesn't mention their weakness. It doesn't mention their fear. It doesn't mention their ineptitude. It mentions that by faith, they crossed the Red Sea. And when God looks at your life, he looks at it through the lens of Christ. And he says, I see true faith. I see a life that will make it because I am over it. And I am in it and I am with it. And this is one of the great lessons that the people of Israel, as former slaves, had no comprehension of as God was making them a people for his own possession, sons and daughters of the king, is that they are not fighting for themselves like they did in Egypt. They are not standing up for themselves. The world is not against them. They don't have to take the world on their shoulders and, and scrap it out with the devil, though often we fall into that trap. What we need to do is the exact thing Moses says. We need to fear not. We need to stand firm. and We need to see, behold, look upon the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He says, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. They will be drowned in the sea. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. What an amazing promise that the Lord fights for us. I think today being Father's Day, I believe the Lord wants us to learn 
continually this valuable and essential lesson that we are not against the world, but our faith has overcome the world. As Romans 8 so powerfully says, if God be for us, then who can be against us? I want to close with just this simple quote from John Calvin that I think is so helpful. John Calvin says, Faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out toward God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you that we do indeed bring nothing to our salvation except our sin. We bring nothing to the table except our ineptitude, our failure, our weakness. But by sovereign mercy, you have given us a seed of faith. And this seed of faith blossoms, and it grows. And it becomes that which becomes a full-blown tree that grows, and all the birds take nest in it. Not only that, it's a faith that overcomes the world, a faith that overcomes the condemnation of the enemy, a faith that stands with its back to Egypt and its face to you and says, Lord, you alone must fight for me, for I can do nothing. This is the kind of faith that overcomes the world. It's the faith that is wrought and made effectual by the blood of Christ. Lord, this is our faith. There is no other. We thank you and praise you for the gloriousness of this faith. Teach us, Lord, to fight with faith, to fight from victory, not for it. For you have given us all that pertains to life and godliness. It is ours. Help us to use the tools of our warfare effectively. Lord, we want to be sons and warriors in your kingdom. We don't want to look and act like slaves. We are indeed slaves of righteousness, but we put off all slaves of unrighteousness, all the garments of our slavery in a former life. We, we cast them off. We, we reject them because you have given us something new to wear, and that is the garments of righteousness. So, Father, help us lean into this truth. Help us to own it, to live in it, to believe it, to preach it to ourselves in the day of battle, to be men and women who live in light of this glorious inheritance we have in Christ Jesus. And we give it all to you in your precious name. Amen.